forever. Dog. You know, my analogy in my book is I'm like a foster kid going from show to show, hoping like, yeah, or like a mercenary going, you know, coming in like the cleaner on Better Call uh, and Breaking Bad. There's a mission, goes, does another mission. But I guess just knowing with the uncertainty and the soul-killing life of auditioning, you have a few places that maybe you'll get a call. Oh, you're back. So, yes. Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from The Big Bang Theory or Speechless or my brief role as a cokehead sports agent in Blackballed, the Bobby Dukes story. Our guest is Fred Stoller. You recognize Fred from, well, everything. He was on Everybody Loves Raymond. He was on The Witches of Waverly Place. He wrote briefly on Seinfeld. He has been a working character actor for 35 plus years. And we're going to talk about the character actor he is. We're also going to talk about the character actors he loves. We spend a really sizable chunk of this episode discussing Jack Riley, Herb Edelman. Uh, there's an amazing story about his time as an extra on a film with uh, a very admired character actor. We're both huge fans of this guy, um, and it's a real kind of unpleasant don't meet your heroes moment. Uh, but it's completely worth listening to. Uh, I'm going to give you I, the hint is that the film is Heaven Help Us, which is so stacked with great character actors that it could be anybody. You got to listen in order to find out. That's how we do things here on Household Faces. It was really a delight to have Fred, the author of the great acting book. Maybe we'll have you back on the podcast. And I think you're going to uh, you're going to get a lot out of this one. Please welcome our guest, Fred Stoller. Let's um, let's get right into it. Um, I feel like you're you're kind of the ideal person to have on this podcast for a myriad of reasons, and we'll we'll get to all of them. But let's let's start with with actual jobs. It, a lot of people recognize you from the arc you had on Wizards of Waverly Place. Well, yeah, younger people or people who are in their twenties, yes. Yeah, yeah, because those shows, they air all the time, and people, kids watch them repeatedly. I only did one Drake and Josh, and I'm astounded that, uh, you know, kids remember me, but I guess, as you said, and you have children, uh, that they'll watch, uh, you know, when they're younger, <coughs> excuse me, a show over and over and over. So I did just one Drake and Josh, a few of a show Ned's Declassified. And yeah, so now when someone recognizes me in their early 20s, mid-20s, where do I know you from? I, I get that a lot. I, I used to get recognized for specific things. Now they ask me to help them. But I always go, Wizards of Waverly Place, if they're young, yeah, yeah. So I think I had emailed you that when I was getting the work, at first I poo-pooed it. Well, I had one bad experience on a kid's show where it was just uh, a big food fight and cream cheese in my head and every angle. That was the only bad one, but, and usually they're very broad, very vaudeville, where even though I'm low key, 
Like, let's say they, I always know they want like a Ben Stein, which I'm not, but like I'm very energetic, Fred slower. So even the deadpan thing is so cartoony more like, I am the most exciting person, slower. So at first it was like, this is stupid. But then, <clears throat> excuse me, as the kids get older, it's very, very rewarding to be part of someone's childhood because I know, and we'll get to it later because a friend of ours passed away, a mutual friend that you work with. <clears throat> um, well, even him, he was a star, George Siegel, but um, people that were just on Mary Tyler Moore or Bob, um, Bob Newhood or Mary Hartman, when I got into show business, I was more excited meeting people from my childhood than let's say George Clooney or Leonardo DiCaprio, people part of when you're impressionable. So long-winded question about what's in Toy Blue, please. But that was a lot of fun. Um, a, we're on a podcast, so we welcome the long-winded answer to a brief question. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to ask a little bit about like the the real process of doing one of those kids multicam sitcoms because they're kind of like you rarely do it in front of an actual live studio audience those those shows actually do use a laugh track people always think that like everything that has laughter is a laugh track but but kid shows that really is a laugh track oftentimes you're because because of various child labor laws and then especially in playing wizards of waverly place where there's so many special effects that they just can't do in front of was that kind of a weird adjustment because you've done a lot of authentic multicams you're a stand-up you know how to surf an audience was it a weird adjustment to be honest um i actually even though i come from stand-up i don't love the roar of the crowd like you're you know on a let's say you've done um you know of course uh um I'm getting old. I can't think of names. Uh, the Big Bang Theory and the multi-camera shows. I, I don't know. I'm not from Broadway. I'm assuming you're from theater. <clears throat> but I I like taking my time and not having that pacing around. The audience is coming in. And yes, there's a magic trick. I did two things to Sabrina, the Teenage Witch. So I like it that it's not, you know, let's say you only have a three, three lines on a, a sitcom guest star. You, you, the whole week are there for every run through waiting for the notes. And then on the tape night, you know, could take five, six hours to tape something. And you're there waiting for the curtain call if you're seen as last. I'm not complaining. I'd love to work. But and it's but I kind of it's more relaxing, like a one camera where you're just there for your little thing. You know what I mean? And do it in those more concentrated where they producers are watching from the video village to monitor and say, Fred, do this. That's yeah. So I, I like that pace better where you're just in for your thing. And on a show with a shtick, um, like a kid's show, yes, there's a lot of magic or a dog or they can't go late. So I like that relaxed pace better. Does this make sense to civilians? It totally makes sense. It totally makes sense. I, I especially love what you, what you said about, um, coming in with only three lines and having to be there for the whole week. That is, um, and I think any guest of this show, any actor will tell you that they'd rather have six soliloquies to memorize than three lines. <coughs> well, one thing of... I, I say, <coughs> excuse me, I said in, in, in my book that, <coughs> God, I just cleared my throat, um, that 
and you can attest to this, um, or maybe you can't. When you have three or four lines in a sitcom, the weird guy coming in saying something weird, that's harder to memorize because, you know, my analogy is jumping on a merry-go-round mid-motion. If you're like in Friends as one of the stars, hey, Joey, hey, Chandler, I don't know. What do you want to eat? It's conversation, give and flow. Same thing with auditions. When you have something weird, a science fiction fact, or you're coming in, <clears throat> it's words you don't relate to. So you're like waiting, let's say on a sitcom backstage to get the thing. And you got to walk in and say something weird. If you're the weird guy, out of context, it's hard. And I remember when I did Friends, Lisa Kudrow said, what you're doing is harder because she, well, she was on Mad About You originally as a recurring waitress. And she said that was harder because she had to just walk over, say something out of context, something weird. And, and again, yeah. So, and it's like I said, you're not in the flow. It's so, the, the, yes, this, the same thing with auditions where if it's something like, Hey, hey, Mark. Hey, John, how you doing? I'm okay. Maybe we'll get water later conversationally, but if it's just, yeah. So I remember when I wrote on Seinfeld, uh, this one guy, uh, can't mess it up his line and Larry David's in the corner. The guy has one line. He can't get it. And I, I, I was feeling bad for the guy. Cause again, you are just this guy, you, the pressure you have you're not supposed to mess up because you have one line and you don't have the luxury makes it so much more pressurized. I, I love that Lisa Kudrow was the one who came over to you. She's an actor's actor, that one. I mean, she's really just, she, she's been in the trenches and she's been to the absolute heights of the industry. And, but she has never forgotten her time as uh, you know, the non sequitur waitress or whatever, you know, she just yes. really has like the chops and the empathy combined. To tell me to... that she knew what I was doing was hard. I was playing a weird waiter on phones that came in, had to say, because Joey got good tips, it always is good to wear tight trousers and the, you know, something weird about dungarees. And, and it was just, yeah, you, you, you come in, you have to hit a mark, say something weird. And uh, yes, yes. So, um, it, 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 you know, on kids' shows, when, when it's not the audience, you can take your time and and you say something weird about wizards or, but it's more relaxed. It's not like the audience is ready with the run-through guy. And also um, with, um, like if you only have a few lines, if it's a one camera, which civilians may not know what that means, it's like, like I did Bones and that's a show. It's not like a play. It's just, you shoot it like a movie. Just kind of It's shot like a film and there's, there's four walls and a full set and you don't have even the illusion of a studio audience wanting right. you. And you're, and if let's say you, if you only have, let's say three lines on Bones or one camera, you're just there for your little thing. And it feels more concentrated. But if you have three lines on a multi-camera show, you're there all week doing the same three lines, every run through, every rehearsal. And I don't know if you've had this on multi-camera shows. You do it so much, you start doubting if it's funny because they're not fake laughing, the producers, or maybe they're not laughing. They've heard it 20 times. So it feels very fresh just doing. And then, and then again, I'm not complaining. I mean, I haven't done this in a while. But then you wait six hours to do a curtain call. You're pacing, eating crap backstage. So I, I like, I like, uh, I, I prefer no audience if I had a choice. 
that's really interesting. You mentioned your book, and I was going to bring it up anyway because um, I have fanboyed in front of you about your book. Oh, that's so sweet. I have, I have endorsed it online. The book oh. is called Maybe We'll Have You Back. And every time I, I mention that, oh, look, there's a copy right in front of us. What's the subtitle again? Maybe the we'll Life have of you a Perennial TV Guest Star. Um, anytime I mention that title to another actor, they both laugh and hold their face in their hands, which is telling, I think, um, because it is something that is said to those of us who do or a ton hope, of guest work. Or you hope they say it like, I'll, you know, I could have some guy like a prop guy go, you should be back. Oh, yeah. And uh, or you want them to say it when you do the curtain call, the producers shake your hands. I was on a sitcom two years ago and I was right in the bar and the guy goes, good work, Fred. And I go, I didn't get that. We'll have you back. So we, we live for this. I, uh, I first became aware of this concept when I was on the show in 1990, Singer and Sons. No one heard of it. It had Esther Roll and Harold Gould. And uh, Harold Gould. Harold, Harold Gould. Gould. We don't talk about Harold Gould as a country enough. Yes, four episodes of this uh, bad sitcom. And I remember, I actually, it was my first and only regular job. I mean, regular, I would part of the cast. And, and I remember at lunch, you know, and I don't know if you have this, but when you do a, a sitcom at lunch, either the regulars sit with the regulars or they go off to their dressing room and have their nice food. That's usually you know, the co-stars sit with the co-stars, the extras with the extras, the guest stars with the guest stars. It's very uh, funny the way they eat. It's show to show for me. I find it, uh, it's show to show for me. It it depends on on a lot of different moving parts and and dynamics. Uh, Also, how long the show has been on. If the show has been on for a few years, yeah, everyone's going back to their rooms. There were the three line guys hung out with the three line guys, the guest star. I hung out with the guest stars. The, the, but there, there were exceptions. Actually, you have some questions we'll get to later. And people always ask me who were the nicest. And Tony Shalhoub um, from. Yes, Wayne, he's so cool. Have you met him? I work. I did an episode of Monk. Isn't he the nicest? He, he, he loves to rehearse. He loves actors. He asks you questions. He would sit with the extras at lunch. He he's he actually got me on Monk because I bumped into him at a video store. So people always ask who's the nicest. And he, like you said, Lisa Kudrow, who knows her roots, would uh, yeah. So um, so what was I saying about eating? Um, you know, you're you're waiting all week, but. Um, yeah, I forgot what I was saying about you were that. you were talking about the the origin of the phrase. Maybe we'll have you back. When oh yes, yes. So at lunch, at lunch, it was my first job, and one guy said, "Hey, I'm del- delivering the mail. They always need mailmen. I'm I'm a guy at the diner. I'm having chicken soup. I, maybe I could be known as the guy with the chicken soup." So that was my first concept that we all, even if they don't say, "Maybe we'll have you back," we in our heads create scenarios. Well. I'm the, I, I came by, I'm the, the administrator, they got to have me back. And, and it doesn't always add up to how good you did or how you think you, I'm, par, I'm in the office. It never adds up to where you, 
you can't go, I have to be back because, but I remember the desperation hearing them talk, these guys that had two lines, how they were convincing themselves they have to be back, they're gonna be part of this. So yes, it's a phrase that stuck with me where even if I'm on a show where I don't enjoy myself, you still wanna have that thing that maybe will have you back because, you know, my analogy in my book is I'm like a foster kid going from show to show, house to house. I always prefer, I prefer to say Ronin Samurai, but foster kid's fine too, whenever you want. Because looking for a home, hoping one, yeah, or like a mercenary going, you know, coming in like the cleaner on Better Call, uh, on Breaking Bad, does a mission, goes, does another mission. But I guess to get away from the soul killing audition life, it's always nice to have a respite. Like this is, a, there's the possibility, like I'm doing an animation show Friday and I actually am coming back. So just knowing with the uncertainty and the soul killing life of auditioning, you have a few places that maybe you'll get a call. Oh, you're back. So yes, it's, uh, but, but it, it was like, yeah, that's uh, even if I haven't enjoyed it, there were, there were one or two where I said, I hope they don't ask me back. Yeah. Only one or two. This place is toxic. Who, who could they? Absolutely. I don't need to work that badly. This is this is a hell on earth. Yes. yes, yes. Yeah. I've, I've, I've had the, those gigs as well. I think what it comes down to, I'm trying to think of like what the first bad example for actors would have been. And I think it's, I think it's Cliff Clavin starting as a guest star and then quickly becoming a series regular at the bar. And I think that just skewed everyone's expectations. Yeah, exactly. Like we always hear the stories that Urkel was a guest or um, on the Drew Carey show, Mimi was a guest. That's right. Remember? That's right. But we Mimi was a guest. And again, it, it, I've had guest stars was prominent and big laughs and I'm in the office and I'm not back. But yes, it's always that hope that it'll exactly, we have the examples. Like, this isn't the same thing, but um, Jerry Seinfeld said something funny. Uh, Paul Reiser uh, met his wife when he was still just a stand-up and out of town, and she was a waitress. And Seinfeld said, that's going to keep uh, waitresses sleeping with comics for another 30 years. That one of them became Paul Reiser. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's terrible. up a little bit you're from new york are you from brooklyn is that right brooklyn new york it like you new can't york. tell like can't. i couldn't tell um the, the, the thing i always say is the brooklyn i'm from i don't know this new gentrified artsy from the show girls sheeps at bay at the end it, it was sort of like welcome back cotter and saturday, saturday night fever brooklyn is what i know my whole life so no i know it's it's deep deep brooklyn it's it's damn near long island um you're you're near the beach but you're not near you're not near coney island yeah, beach you're the, i was born in uh I was, i'm from deep queens but i grew up in in midtown and um uh and i spent my last couple of years in astoria so I, I i know there's a few different Shade, or at least at the time, there's a few different shades to Brooklyn. Um, so when do you, when does a guy like you realize that this is something you could do for a living? Well, the thing is, 
when I was a kid, I was pathologically shy and depressed. And I didn't know, I knew I couldn't be in the real world. I would say, I knew I couldn't be an architect or a dentist. I was very scared. And I'm an old guy when I say kids today, kids in my era, we weren't savvy about show business because there was no DVD behind the scenes, YouTube, how to break in, entertainment tonight, a path. So I didn't there was even- a wall. There was a real like gatekeep, gate-kept wall between the plebes and the people on the television. And it really seemed like some sort of weird alchemy how to get inside that box. Well, even though you could almost see the World Trade Towers from Brooklyn, I might as well have lived in a small town. Like um, you, like I said, you know, there's a million, you know, when I grew up, there was not even cable TV, let alone the internet. And there were only three channels. There wasn't even Fox yet. So they didn't have these behind the scene peaks. This is how this guy made it or podcast where someone said, this is how I made it. You know what I mean? So there was no concept. So I thought from what I heard in a few interviews to be a character actor or in show, on TV shows, you had it, your parents had to start you when you were young, like the Brady Bunch. So I kind of, another reason that present my parents, why didn't you get me into TV? So I thought it was like ice skating, you know, like you had to start when you were three. I just have didn't have a big know. Russian coach. Yes, yes, a gymnast. So, so I didn't, I had no idea. It wasn't even a dream because it was, I, and I would, as a kid, I would watch Sanford and Son and I didn't know, I, once in a while I'd see written by, I didn't know what that meant. I just thought Red Fox is funny. So I was not savvy or sophisticated in any way, but I would always gravitate towards character actors because they, I never had the confidence I could be, you know, a macho guy, Clint Eastwood, but I'd see weird guys on the Bob Newhart show or just, you know, the patients or on Barney Miller. Like who were your, who were your, I usually say this to later, but who were your guys? Who were the guys you were looking at? Like, oh, that's, I, I'm, I'm drawn to this guy. That looks like something I could do. The funny, you mentioned Herb Edelman in the book, and this is a Herb Edelman household. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes, yes. So the funny thing is the people that I thought I, I reminded them of were not stars, but there was a guy, Herb Edelman, which very few people know him. Well, he, he was, he was Dorothy's ex-husband on Golden Girls. That's yeah, probably his most life, like recognizable credit. He would pop up on things. There would be guys that I didn't even know their name. Like uh, Dog Day Afternoon is probably my favorite movie. Have you seen it? I love it. And so it's, it it's absolute. It's pornography for character actors. It's incredible. It's Charles Durian's Big Break. Yes. And so uh, there was a guy who chickens out in the beginning, and I fantasized I was him. So I never had the confidence to. I could be a one of the leads, but I find these people, I would always love the people like, who's that guy? I want to see him pop up again. Or there was, there was a movie called, I forgot what it was called, The Parallax View. Yeah, and I was end, just talking about this the other day with a friend of mine, the Warren Beatty movie. There was a guy at the end, a tuba player that points to a bad guy. And I said, I could be that. So I had such little confidence that I gravitated towards, well, Again, I, I, I'm skipping ahead. One of my idols who I got to be friends with, uh, Jack Riley from the Bob Newhart show, was like a depressed yeah. patient. 
So he was one of my heroes, one of my inspirations. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. He was one of Bob's patients. Yes. On the Bob Newhart show, the first Bob Newhart show where he played a psychiatrist, not yes. Newhart, where he's the inn owner. Yes. Psychiatrist Bob Newhart. And he was the guy with the kind of weird bowl cut, Jack Riley. Very miserable, depressed guy. And I, I just, so uh, those are the people, again, I don't know if I, I fantasize being guys with three lines or, all right, this is the biggest fantasy I had. Um, and they say, don't meet your heroes. And this guy, could I curse? Yes, of course. He was an asshole. It's a long, that'll a story maybe if you want, I'll go into it. Yeah, I but, want, I want, I want, go into it. Okay, so I remember watching The Dirty Dozen as a kid. And I didn't know much about film noir, but these were all film noir guys in their twilight or, you know, later, you know. Um, and Donald Sutherland was the goofy guy just doing shtick. And I go, I like that guy because he's a goofball. And uh, I said, I could be that guy, you know. So I remember loving Donald Sutherland until I met him and he was a big asshole. Oh, that's heartbreaking. And oh, I mean, it's okay. I, 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 I pimped you into it. Um, but that is such a bummer. What did you, what did you, how did you meet him? Also, it's not just me, Paul Mazursky, who you know had a table at the market. Um, they were doing something for one of his birthdays and all, he approached all people who work with Paul to do a little thing like, or his funeral and Sutherland didn't want to be. Okay, so what happened was, a long time ago, uh, it was a movie. It became called Heaven Help Us. Uh, Donald Sutherland was the star. About, it was originally called Catholic Boys. Heaven uh, Help Us is that movie about a um, uh, boys Catholic school in Brooklyn in the 60s. Yes, it had. Sutherland and John Hurd is one of the, the monks. Kevin Dillon was in it. Andrew McCarthy, um, what's his face? Who's uh, Stephen Jeffries? Who's Evil Ed in the Fright Night uh, movies? Yes, yes. I know exactly what you're talking. Wallace Shawn is one of the brothers, unless I'm mistaken. Yes, that's correct. So I, um, it may have been my first time being an extra. I was an extra three times in New York in commercials. No, no, one time in a commercial where I was a principal and I got downgraded to an extra. That's a humiliating story, but. Um, so Donald Sutherland, you know, it was a big assembly scene, like 300, 400 extras, which, by the way, I found out both uh, the guy who created Sons of Anarchy, I forgot his name, Kurt Sutter. Sutter and um, Aaron, I'm at that age, I can't think of names, from the West Wing, um, okay. yes, were both extras themselves. A lot of budding people got this uh, massive call to be sitting in an auditorium. So they Sorkin and Kurt Sutter are in the auditorium. Is it the auditorium scene where Wallace Shawn? No, that's the prom where Wallace Shawn get gets the terrifying. Some people were like acting up and, they, and, and they, they went, one of the pastors says, get out and kick them out or something like that. And um, so what happened was Donald Sutherland between takes was trying to be funny and, you know, and... Uh, and then the AD was being very condescending. Guys, if you're not good, I'll take your drugs away. Hey, guys. And so then, you know, there's long breaks, you know, with setups. So the AD goes, any comedians up here? And one guy got up 
very amateurish guy. Actually, I became friends with the guy years later and did some bits, some stupid bits like mental floss, like with the rope, you know, old jokes. And then he said, any other comedians? And then you have this fantasy. How can I get noticed? You know, you have this fantasy when you're an extra that they'll pull me up, you know. So I said, uh, me. And I got up. And because I was sort of a professional comedian for three years and, um, and um, you know, uh, they were a captive audience and they were being scolded. I was killing, you know, and I, you know, and I was just getting big laughs and I was, they were just so happy. And I was just go, oh, this is good. A Jewish guy on Passover being a Catholic boy. And, and then Donald Sutherland comes up behind me, and goes, get off, get off pushed me off because anyone could get get laughs doing jokes about you know Passover and then and then I and he was my idol then I I passed him he wouldn't look at me I was there for a few more days and people go what an asshole he was like he was threatened that an extra was getting big laughs and then I still wanted him to have eye contact and he wouldn't look at me when he'd walk by so an asshole that is a colossal, colossal bummer. Um, it's a, um, that's wild. That is, uh, that is, I think that the thing about Sutherland um, and the leading men of his generation is that they really bridged the line between character actor and leading man. Because when, when I, I'm a couple years younger than you, but when we, we grew up, I'm still in that, that 70s streak of like, oh, you need a romantic lead, like Elliot Gould, like Walter Matthau, sure. you know, and there was this really skewed perspective before they started putting Matthew McConaughey in romantic comedies where like, oh, guys who actually look like husbands are going to play people who fall in love. Um, like and yeah, it, I think it just completely uh, uh, fucked with our expectations. You've mentioned the table repeatedly, and we're going to come to the table now. So there was a table is a table at the farmer's market, uh, the, the capital F farmer's market, which is on Fairfax and, and third here in Los Angeles, um, that I, I stopped off and, and, and sat at for a while because I had worked with George Siegel, who- you know, uh, Let me interrupt. Um, when they say don't meet your idols, that Donald, Donald Sutherland was heartbreaking not heartbreaking was George Siegel and oh, Jack Harlow who were at the table. What a champ, George Siegel, man! What a great still, guy. I mean, was he died, but he still, till his death, exuded movie star. He exuded it without being arrogant. He just without being arrogant. He had this welcoming, inclusive quality. And I said this online when he passed. I had a bunch of great photos of, of us. We did like a a, a not great retired TV land. Oh no, retired. At, yeah, retired at thirty-five. The memory on you. This well, you I can remember. Doing it. He would come to the table and, and uh, I mean, I, I, um, he was, I loved him before I met him, you know, way before just shoot me, but those seventies movies like the hot rock and where's Papa and. Bloom and love California this, split. Yes. This warmth, like Elliot Gould they've met doesn't have that warmth that George had. You know, George had, he still, until the end, exuded movie star charm. And and I was, this is funny. The, so, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but. No, I'll no. Let, I, I, when, I, when I first sat at the table, you were there. Paul Mazursky was there. Um, Ronnie. Um, 
Shell. Ronnie, Ronnie Shell, Shell from uh, from Gomer Pyle was there. It was the same, and I was I was amazed that he allowed me to sit down. He he, he pull, literally pulled up a chair for me, and I was I, I was like, "You come to me to be baptized?" I was so out of my league, but you right. all were so it's, welcoming. The first time he came to the table, um, now if the people don't know, Paul Mazursky was a uh, he did. You know, next stop Greenwich Village, uh, the thing uh, down and out in Beverly Hills. The, Bob and Carol Bob and Ted and Alice. A lot of 70s uh, things. And he was the macha, the big guy. He was the alpha at the table. He didn't like if someone interrupted him. He had to get the laughs. He wasn't as bad as Donald Sutherland, but he was kind of grumpy. Uh, no, I love Paul. And the first time George sat there, I was just, like you say, fanboy over he represented the 70s. The 70s were my seminal years. All my favorite movies, the 70s, Dog Day Afternoon, Cuckoo's Nest, Midnight Cowboy, um, Scarecrow, you know, uh, Cuckoo's Nest. All those 70s somber movies, 70s TV shows. So he embodied the 70s and I was just all over him. And then when he left, uh, Paul Mazursky goes, Next time, put a condom on your tongue when you have it up his ass so long. Like he didn't like uh, that I was all over George. So, Goodness gracious. Um, yes. So, so there was this table where Paul was the main attraction and there would be guests coming to it, Sharon Stone and, and that would sit. And then Paul passed away. But in my book, I, I, I talk about one time you talk about one particular director who stopped by. What happened was um, the, the new Beverly, I'm pointing there like they know, but I lived there, Beverly. It, uh, Quentin Tarantino bought the theater. And have you been there? Yeah, it's gorgeous. And he, he, it's this old revival. It's actually an old porno, a porno house that was a revival house when I moved here and was starting to fall on hard times. And its original programmer died and Tarantino bought it gutted it, put in new seats, new sound system, and only shows film, only shows prints. He doesn't do digital projection there. Plus all the coming attractions are from that era. Yeah. So he had some Paul Mazursky uh, films with the coming attractions and, and uh, Paul said, you should come to the table. And um, so I, I, was, um, I had this delusion I think a lot of character actors have the Tarantino delusion where sure. one of my heroes who just died was Robert Foster from Jackie. Oh, yeah. He had, because he had a slump where he didn't work for like 20 years or just really cheesy stuff. Tarantino sees him at a place called the, the Silver Spoon where Shelley Winters used to hang out, Sally Kirkland, and said, I'm going to put you in this movie. And, you know, he didn't know who uh, uh, Tarantino was. So then he gives him the script for Jackie Brown. He goes, I want you to read this. He goes, what part do you think you could play? What do you like? He goes, well, I like the Bell Bondsman, but they're not going to let me be a lead in a studio movie. And Tarantino goes, they'll do whatever I want. So that jumped him. So so I, I think a lot of, and Robert Forster was a great, gracious guy, good friend that he ended up being. So a lot of people, but maybe me, we have this delusion Someone's going to know me from Seinfeld and the weird nebbish guy and go, you should be a hitman. I'm going to do something creative. I'm going to make you a cop. So I had that since Tarantino is a movie pop culture buff, I thought he'd see me and go, Fred Stoller, you're always this. You got to be a 
hitman or something. He had no idea who I was. And uh, I was still excited to meet Tarantino, but he knew Ronnie Shell from Disney movies, like the world's strongest man. And, and he said to George Siegel, you would have been the bear Jew when you were younger. And, uh, and he knew uh, he loved Jack Riley, no clue who I was. So I was excited to meet him, but I had that delusion fantasy that my career, I'd be Robert Forster. Dude, I came so, I, my, my Tarantino delusion um, seemed so close that it was almost within my grasp. He saw me in a play on a night where I killed and, um, and I knew he was in the audience and I was like, okay, just be cool, John, be cool. You know, he's in the audience, but be cool. I come out, it's a Neil Simon play. It's Laughter on the 23rd Floor, which you probably know. It's the one that's loosely based on uh, the, your show of shows, Writer's yeah. Room, right? I come out within my first, you know, it's a Neil Simon play. So I have like two zingers within a minute of getting out on stage. And, it, you know, that's the most distinct laugh in Hollywood outside of wow, maybe you heard Frank Drescher. And, and I was like, okay, so he is center right audience. And I'm not going to say like I cheated towards him for the rest of the night, right. but I, I, I was conscious, conscious of where he was sitting. I'll leave it at that. And uh, yeah, he took out right after the, took off right after the curtain call. And I am conspicuously not in once upon a time in Hollywood. So uh, casting is an inexact science, Fred. Yes. It, uh, I, I'm going to tell like a story similar, but not really like, uh, a comedian I know through the 80s sadly uh, committed suicide. And right before the pandemic, they had his memorial. Uh, and Larry David knew him from the 80s. I, you know, wait, I, wait, who? I'm sorry, who was this? I don't know if you knew Mike Reynolds. He never really made it. No, I knew the name, though. I did hear about that. Yeah. Okay. So at the improv, one friend of mine, she... She spent a few hundred for her makeup and hair. Everyone knew Larry David was going to be there. And she was so disappointed that Larry just left, didn't compliment her. And there were other people getting up to, to give eulogies or, you know, memorials. And it was like a show mentioned, I'm writing a play, like giving their credits to get up there and memorialize the guy who killed himself because Larry David was there giving their credits. And, and one was so disappointed, like you said, that, Tarantino that Larry just split at a friend's you know, memorial. So it's well, crazy. if you can't network at a at a at a funeral at the improv, then I mean, what are we all doing here? Exactly. exactly. I want to back up for a moment and talk about um, your work on Everybody Loves Raymond. Um, I want to talk about some of the, the grown-up multicams you have done. Yeah. Um, and you played Cousin Gerard on uh, Everybody Loves Raymond. And there's one pivotal uh, episode that bears your character's name where it becomes very clear that Ray can't stand Gerard because Gerard is a great deal like him. Mm -hmm. And we're probably going to play a clip here um to to further illustrate that so did you guys sort of 
because you're really not a Ray Romano type, nor is he a Fred Stoller type. Clone, which I don't think so, but I don't, yeah. I don't see it. I, I honestly don't see it. I think you've got your individual gifts, but you guys do seem to sync up. Was that? Did you guys work together, sort of offset? Like we have to be really on the same page. We got to have a certain vocal yeah. rhythms down. Well, yes or no? What happened was, <clears throat> I went into audition. Uh, there was a part of a what's it called? A, a class reunion, two guys, and it was um. The one who got it was Bob Odenkirk and Brian Posehn. Oh. Posehn got the part. It was like everyone was auditioning. Tom Kent, you know, uh, you know, back when there were a lot more sitcoms, you know, you'd see the same people. And I didn't get it, but uh, uh, Ray was there and Phil Rosenthal and the writer, and they were laughing uh, when I said the word now. They, they go, he says now just like Ray does now. And my friend, Steve Scrovan, good friend, was a writer on the show the whole run, said, you didn't get it, you know, I know, I know. But if there's a cousin, you'd be perfect. And apparently, in real life, Ray resented that they said he looked like a healthy Fred Stoller. So I think there was a little truth to this that I annoyed him in real life because I reminded him of him. But Here's some gossip like Zach Braff when I worked on Scrubs said, um, uh, yeah, Ray came up to me. Oh, so they say we're like each other, huh? Almost like annoyed. Like, so Ray has a lot of neuroses. And uh, so, uh, so I think there was some truth where, and he would make jokes. Well, actually, one of his stories is, uh, I did a set at the comic strip, Upper East Side. I left to do another set. He was hanging out, he came in and people on the way out were complimenting him. So some people would mistake us. And, and then he would do, he would do jokes like, it, you know, um, I'm Fred, um, Fred stole as me if I had AIDS, you know, uh, and he always felt guilty, you know, doing that. Uh, so, there was some kind of truth to he kind of was annoyed by me for that reason. So uh, they did a scene. I was in a scene first where it was their um, a revow, uh, flashback of their wedding. And I had a bunch of lines as cousin Gerard. It got cut. And one thing I write in my book, I don't know if this ever happened to you, where I learned a lesson. If I'm doing a guest star or even a little part in a movie, don't tell anyone to watch it until you know if you've been cut or not. Oh, it's a sucker's game. I never tell oh, anyone. Never do that. I, I um, told my mother to watch me on Raymond, and they didn't tell me I was cut. Face, I've yeah. worked on some shows, like one of the menschiest people I ever worked with was Gary Marshall, a movie called Dear God, where he sent me a Gary, personal uh, Greg Kinnear? Yes, yes. Where he sent me a personal letter saying nothing personal, nothing cr creative. It's a huge, I'm sorry, a cut. I went to a screening of Scary Movie 2 with a date, and they didn't tell me I was cut. And I'm sitting there like feeling like an idiot. So I learned my lesson until the thing is out. But so I was cut from the first time I was um, in uh, Raymond. And, and you know the, the business where. Sometimes you get cut and you're an extra and you still get the residuals. Like, you know, I have that where they cut and you're just so, 
Like I was, my, all my lines were cut from the movie, um, uh, The Change of Ryan Reynolds and Jason Bateman, but I still got residuals because I was there holding up like a sign or something. So that's one of the perks, you know. Uh, you could cut my lines, but if my face is there, I still get a little money. So yes, yeah, so then I was cut. And then these two writer's assistants uh, had the idea for, because Ray was fuming at the office. I'm not like Fred Stoller. I'm not that bad. So that's how Gerard happened. That is incredible. I want to also talk a little bit about your experience. We've, we touched on a little bit your experience writing for Seinfeld. You, you weren't on staff. You sold a couple freelancers. Was. Is that right? Oh, you were on staff. I apologize. Oh, that's right. You did a whole year and you wrote a book about it. What am I saying? Um, you were on staff and you, 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 your first script, you managed to be in it. No. Shit. I thought I had this. Which, which you're in one of the episodes. Is it one, isn't it one of the ones you wrote? Yes and no. Okay. Um, okay. To make a, a long story short, I, I, I was on staff the 94, 95 season. And the first episode I, I sold or pitched that they did <clears throat> was based on a true story. This annoying comedian sees me at Starbucks. He said, I'm working out with weights. I'm huge. I got a brand new Armani suit. Doesn't fit me anymore. You want it? Yeah. I never had a suit. And he goes, you take me out for a meal. It's even. We're even. So then we meet at Jerry's Deli. He gets soup. And he goes, I'm just going to save the meal. I'm just going to have soup. I came to like 20 bucks. This was like 25 years ago. I wasn't rich, even though I just got on staff. And then he did it like two or three times. Meet me at Jerry's Deli. He goes, I'm going to save the meal. I'm just going to get soup. And that became Kenny Banya. Um, you know, the guy who the soup counters a meal. And then, and the thing is, Jerry's stories were always harder to get on. And I got lucky that that happened to me because he's not petty or cheap or has been the roses. Just something happens to him. So I was struggling getting another Jerry story approved. And I wasn't fitting in. Um, that show is different than most shows have what's called a table where you all as writers pound out the arcs and the things and punch each other up, your stories. This one, everyone was on their own. My analogy, it's like, we're all trying to solve homicides so we have our own cases. Everyone shuts the door, writes their own things. And I was totally, it was so isolating and you can't pitch a story until you find Larry and he's always cash thing on the floor, rewriting, editing. It was very maddening and isolating. So I wasn't coming back, but I uh, one of my storylines got on where Kramer has to apologize to a monkey. Um, what happened in real life, when I was a kid, our family went to this place in Florida called Monkey Jungle. And these grown men were throwing rocks at the monkeys. And the woman goes, what are you throwing rocks at monkeys for? The guy goes, they started it. And I was they started it, they're monkeys. So I told that story to Larry. So I knew I wasn't coming back, but this was the last episode before I was, you know, not coming back. So th this would have the storyline of uh, Putty, the face painter at the hockey game. Oh, so uh, I wanted uh, Patrick Warburton? Yes, yes. So I wanted to be on it. So I said, could I, Larry, could I sit in the audience, you know? Yeah, yeah, I don't care. So I, I sat cheering like I was a hockey fan. 
So I was in that part. I see. Um, uh, what, um, this is a question we ask all of our guests, what uh, was a role that got away? What was one that just kind of slipped through your fingers? What was one that you were like, oh, I think I got this and then no. Well, there were a few of them. Well, things slipped away for different reasons. Um, like one of them, it, I don't think it would have changed my life, but when suddenly Susan was on, I could have been like a wanted a recurring. I did four, but an agent messed up. I wasn't available. I could have been one of the guys in the office, but back in 96, I was naive. I thought independent movies were like Tarantino movies. I didn't know what independent movie meant something that's probably no one's going to see. So I flew myself to the Poconos and put myself up thinking this is going to really, you know, do be different like Tarantino. It was garbage and I wasn't available. Like, uh, like once there was one day shooting that two weeks off, I had to stay in New York. It was ridiculous. And I, I took myself out of contention. There was another part. Did you ever have a thing where you weren't aware you were going to be someone till they told you? Like in Dumb and Dumber, I'll give you an example. Okay. I, you know, it's very happy to have the cameo where I get punched through the phone booth. Yeah. But I was almost going to be the bad guy with uh, the sidekick, the Mike Starr. Yeah. You know, Mike Starr punches me and he's been a lot of Scorsese. Right, he punches you out uh, through the, the window he's of the, the phone booth. Guy. And then yeah. I was really close to um, being his sidekick in the whole movie, the, the schmucky second bad guy. But then they decided, you know, we need a female. So they gave it to Duff, who used to be on MTV. Karen Duff, sure. So um, things like that. Another one, the one time I've been cut from so many movies, like I said, but there's one time, man, I think this could have done a lot. I was in daddy daycare doing a long scene with Eddie Murphy, improvising that cracking up on the set. And then the, the, the arc, you know, I'm a job counselor telling him why he's useless. He, he doesn't get jobs and they're laughing. Eddie's loving it. Big scene. And then the arc was then Angelica Houston, who was the, uh, the bad person, she ends up going to job counseling and I'm saying the same lines to her. It's pretty epic to work with Angelica Houston. I don't know if you know who she is. And she's um, John Houston's daughter. She's a a movie star in her own right. Yeah, she's uh, um, saying you got to know Jack Nicholson's girlfriend for many years. And she was so nice. Big scene with Eddie Murphy. They cut it because they, they tested it, needed a different ending. So at the end, uh, she was a crossing guard or something. So I don't know if that got away, but that was the one heartbreaking thing I got cut from. Most things were like blank man, a delivery guy I got cut from. That was a pretty meaty thing. Well, it's funny because it's it's sometimes it's the, the ones that got away aren't necessarily the ones that are going to move the needle. Like I, I remember coming really close to a defense attorney on judging amy do you remember that show judging amy for you like mark futterman or something's part or uh, i don't even remember I, uncharacteristically i don't remember who actually did get the part um uh uh i 
but it was it was great because it was going to be a chance to do all the lawyer things. I was going to object. I was going to object for very specific reasons. I was going to ask to approach the bench. I was going to do all the TV lawyer things. And I was just like, yeah. and at that point, it's like doing Hamlet. Like, how do I put my spin on these iconic lines, you know? You know, we still make the same mistakes where I'll have an audition or I'm on hold. And I'm fantasizing, okay, this curve thing where I was on hold for three times and didn't get, yeah, that'll be good on the demo reel or I'm already thinking of the demo reel and this clip of the Connors and nonsense and it doesn't happen. So, you know, uh, yeah, it's hard not to think of the thing when you're up for it. It's so weird because so many of us are by nature and by us, I mean, actors and New Yorkers are by nature so pessimistic, but we allow ourselves to be optimistic about the dumbest shit sometimes. You know, yes, but also people go, Fred, you're so, so negative. And I go, like a friend of mine, well, we're not friends anymore. We don't go into politics, but um he used to go, I'm positive. I'm not like you. I know I'm going to make it. He hasn't done anything. He lives in Brooklyn. But if you're not in the trenches, you're positive if you've never tried anything. So when you're in the trenches, I and I always envy delusional people because, you know, you're uh, too self-aware. So, yes, I do think, some, you know, uh, my, my favorite line about show business, um, this guy, Again, I think his name's Jerry Stahl. He wrote the book Permanent Midnight, the movie. Was yeah, that's Jerry Stahl. He was a he was a he was a writer. He was a sitcom writer. He actually wrote on Alf while while paying for a, a debilitating heroin habit. Yes, and one of his best lines is in show business: something you didn't know about twenty four hours ago is a necessity. Like, <laughs> like you know, oh Fred, you may be uh, Chalky, the animated thing and the promo of. Uh, and you think Chalky and you know something you didn't know about you fucking have to have you know what I mean that feeling absolutely it's yeah something you didn't know about 24 hours ago is a necessity and that's my favorite line about show business <laughs> and I think we gotta end it there that's just such a beautiful button um Fred I cannot thank you enough I hope to see you at the farmer's market when the smoke clears oh they're back on Friday so 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 come by, and uh, you are a great guy, and uh, I hope this was entertaining. Fred Stoller, thank you so much. And that is an episode wrap on Fred Stoller. You can find him on social media at Fred underscore Stoller on both Twitter and Instagram, and check out fredstoller.net for more of your Fred Stoller needs. He does occasional voices on Central Park, which just got renewed for another season by Apple TV. Forever Dog. Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? Yeah.